0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Now, before I dive into the gospel section, I want to invite our guest Arlene Hodge to come and share with us for just a couple of minutes. Um, The artwork that you, I'm sure, noticed on the walls as you came in today is uh, all thanks to Arlene, and we are really grateful for you bringing that to us to uh to have and share with us it fits so well with what we've been talking about for several weeks now and so arlene would you uh just share for a few minutes and tell us about this work and why it's here yeah go ahead this scares me (laughs)
1: um well i'd like to first say first say thank you all so much um for having me here it really means a lot to me i'm gonna try not to cry up here um So, Arlene Hodge, um, I'm a photographer, and a long time ago I used to shoot rainbows and pretty things, um, or at least what most people think are pretty, and flowers and my sons, and um, that all changed for me. But a few months ago I got a phone call from a woman from the Democrat and Chronicle who said, you know, we're getting some emails on your work, and we hear that you like to sleep with homeless people in parking garages and in the local shelters and with the bed bugs. Would you do an interview? And I thought... Yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. I want everyone to just see all these these people. And so we did the interview. Can you all hear me? Am I talking right? Um, so we did the interview, and they had a photographer follow me around, and I took him into shelters, and I thought, oh, this article is going to come out, and maybe I can get some gallery work out of it, and you know, the phone will be ringing. And um, what I least expected happened is that churches started calling me emailing me contacting me and asking if i would show my work um and i thought oh i'm like a wannabe buddhist i have not been to church in 30 years and i just don't know if i can do it i don't know if i want to do it and i met with um a fellow at another church and he showed me around and we talked about it and i said all right i'll give it a shot and i loved i loved, love loved it and i knew that my work is really supposed to be in a church um And so another church called, and I did another church. And each one that I did, I thought, man, I'm right where I'm supposed to be with these. I was really scared to sit up in front of a congregation, and now I think I'm getting the hang of it. So, um, yeah, I I started photography when I was really... There's a photo there. Um, I started photography when I was really young, um, little, little, and did a lot of darkroom work in high school and went off to college and then I got married and had um, my first two first two sons in my first marriage. And um, after a time, we got divorced. And then I got married again. And um, I heard some talk of marital troubles. And, and I've been there twice over. And it's just a horrible place to be, and most especially when you have children that are involved. Um, but I went through that. And my second marriage was filled with deployments. Um, My husband was in the service, and we eloped right before 9-11. No one could have predicted what would happen. And deployment after deployment, um, we thought, maybe we'll try for a baby. And could I handle him being gone for the nine months of the pregnancy? We tried. Nine months went by. He came home the night before um, her due date. I went into labor, and I delivered her, and she died an hour before I delivered her. And I think that's what just sent me over the edge. I fell into depression, drank a lot of wine, and um, after a year, my doctor sent me off to a therapist, and you know, my two sons were suffering. My husband came back, and we thought, all right, a year's gone by, maybe we'll try for another one. And I felt like I was in a good place, and I have a a seven-year-old running around here who is the other one, who is our earth angel, who... Um, but I never really got over the grief of losing Kelsey, and um, I think I had a midlife crisis. And woke up, and my husband was on another deployment to Afghanistan, and I walked out. I moved out of our new farmhouse. I took my son, and waited for him to come back. And I think that's when I really, the grief of losing her just hit me full force. couldn't pick up my camera during all of that time since she passed away. I, I mean, nothing was beautiful, even pictures of my kids i just couldn't do any of it and i started um taking getting into abandoned buildings it was a depression and i had heard people were going into abandoned buildings and taking photos and i thought oh yeah i think i could do that and i started breaking into all every place around here and then i'd stumble upon homeless people and crack addicts and it just i felt at home i felt no one could judge me in these places I can sit at the house of mercy and and be there for days and wake up with the bed bugs but not one of these people are going to judge me because they've been married divorced dead children they're killing themselves like you know the song is they're just calling out for help so i started taking photos and i was down in new york city for a time and i've got some of those photos in the hallway doing street photography and then I would take photos of homeless people, and every time I'd look at them, I think they're just they sucked because I didn't know the person. It was very gratuitous, you know. I've got the homeless shot, and uh, I think I pretty much destroyed most of those photos. And when I, you know, was back in Rochester and I started taking more shots of homeless people, I thought still it wasn't working for me. So I decided I need to find some homeless people and sleep with them, and I did. And there was a group of homeless um, men and women up on the tracks here. And I introduced myself with my camera and said, I'm not a student, and I'm not doing this for money. I just want to know more about you. I want to know your name, know your story. I just want to know. And so they took me under their wing, and I slept in the parking garage. And then and the photos were like being at a family party. You take pictures of the cake, and the kids, it was family. And then I just, I loved it. I felt that happiness again, really, in my photos. I just... um I had a name, a name to go with, a face. So I thought, oh, all right, I'll sleep at the House of Mercy. So I went there and introduced myself, and they gave me a key to the back room, and I said, no, 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 I want to sleep on the couches. I want to sleep with these people and not be treated any different. And some of my closest friends I met at the House of Mercy, waking up with those bed bugs really bad. But I did that, and I broke bread with them, and um, it it really changed my life. And Kelsey being gone, it was a gift. It just became a gift. Her death gave me this vision. Um, my depression gave me the vision to see what life is really all about. And um, it's not always pretty flowers and rainbows um, or pretty people. It's, it's about what you see on the walls here. So I want to read a little passage really quick that I found. And I don't have my glasses, but I think I can do this. Um, So, here I'll read a little bit of what I wrote. Then I stumbled upon people, those who are homeless, suffer mental illness, and those battling addiction. Where many people find these persons lacking beauty, I found my place, photographically and spiritually. Their suffering lessened mind, helping them, help me. Um, This is from Luke 14. Then Jesus said to his host When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters or relatives or your rich neighbors if you do they may invite you back and so you will be repaid but when you have a banquet invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed although they cannot repay you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous and that really summed it up for me and so as you walk around and look at the photos and again thank you so much shane (laughs) and you guys thank you so much um i'll kind of go around the stations um I have over here photos, they're from New York City, some of the homeless shots, and some of the people in Rochester mostly from the House of Mercy, just little ones. Um, I was gonna put some explanations, we had talked about that, but I think when you look at these photos, your heart will tell you what the story is. Um, over here, again, the sidewall, I've got more pictures of some of the homeless in the House of Mercy. There's a photo over there of a woman, her hands are crossed in a tent, and about two miles from here, um, a 35-year-old, incredibly beautiful, I mean outwardly and inwardly beautiful woman, um, was diagnosed with MS, and it went really quick within years. She had three children, ended up in a divorce, ended up homeless on the streets, paralyzed, ran into a alcoholic, crack um, substance abuser, and he would push her around the streets, her name is Dawn, with, um, in her wheelchair, and when I met her, I had stump- went up to the tracks to check on some of the guys that were living there, and her boyfriend was stealing lights over high falls and bringing them up for money. And he was pretty wasted, passed out in the tent, and when Dawn went to go try to get to him, she fell out of her wheelchair. I had looked around, and it was snowing, and she was wearing a Depends. She had defecated in. She It was down around her thighs. She couldn't get into the tent, and her boyfriend, who was supposed to take care of her, just left her there. So we got her in the tent, And um, she's now in a nursing home and got herself away from him, and she's doing awesome. And she's just an amazing story. Um, The back wall over there, the photos that are hanging, those are faces of Rochester, a couple of Vermont. Um, The guys up on the back there, there are some folks we met at Vermont, very cool people. And they're just faces of us. Um, A few of the guys there are the ones that I spent a lot of time sleeping with, some amazing people there. And my favorite series of photos that I have up right now are on these back two walls, and that is Reggie. Um, Reggie's story is a really sad one, but it's our story. He wa- he had worked at Kodak for over 25 years. He was a well-known basketball player in Rochester. Um, I've heard stories of people saying, oh, he'd get out of- on his lunch break at Kodak and run miles training for basketball. He was a really well-known gentleman. And his wife left him. And that sent him into depression, which sent him into drinking, which sent him in. He's a, a pretty hardcore crack addict now, but he's the most amazing person I think I've ever met. He hangs around Avenue D in Hudson panhandling. House of Mercy got him a home. Um, he, they put furniture in there, and he'd tear it all apart and put it in a gar- pile out front in the garbage. So he'd sleep on his bare floors. There's some photos over there a photo with the toilet seat propped in the window. He'd take his toilet apart and use it for something. Well, about a month ago, Reggie um, burned his house down, a nice house he had off Hudson. He burned it down with a toaster in the bathroom. Who knows what he was doing in there with a toaster in the bathroom. But I last found out about four days ago, he's at Strong Hospital, and they found he has a bone disease. Um, If you could keep him in your prayers, truly, um, he could be our brother, sister, father, maybe not sister, but grandfather just uh and he is so those those are Reggie that's Reggie now after a a long bright uh budding future is it's not like that anymore so if you could keep all these people in your prayers and know that a divorce could send you into deep depression which could send you drinking a whole lot which could send you right out in the streets in a heart within a year you could be there to support everybody going through something keep these guys in your prayers and um Thanks for having me here and listening to me <laughs> tell my story.
0: Thank you so much, Charlene. I probably should just go home now. But <laughs> um, I do want to tell you that uh, you can you can look at the art today while you're here. But um, could you pick that up for just a second? Uh, we're, we're going to exhibit this along with some of our signature immersed prayer stations um, at the times that are on the screen. So, this Tuesday from 5 to 9, Wednesday before the annual meeting, 3 to 6, and, and Friday night, 5 to 9 as well. These showings are open to the public, and you sh- can and should invite your friends to come see this work. And it's not like you have to come and do the, the prayer part of it. If you're a person, if you have friends who are not people of faith, uh, and wouldn't want to do the prayer. It's totally okay to still bring them. I just want you to know that um, this this room and this building are will be open from those at those times, and uh, we want everybody possible to come and see this this work because it really is life changing. You know, we so much of what our friend who's what did you say? You're a, a wannabe Buddhist who hasn't been in church in thirty years. So much of what she just shared is actually the Gospel of Jesus Christ um, it wasn 't couched in in sermonic language, and it wasn 't systematic theology, um, but as we 're about to see, uh, I hope, um, it, the, the work speaks, and um, it, the work is is prayer, and the work is the word um, in in many ways so Thank you again for bringing it in and for sharing it with us, Arlene. But, um, the way my notes read is this question, have you ever felt like God had completely abandoned you? And I think after what we've just heard and, and some of the prayers that we had, the question is almost rhetorical uh, at this point because we've all, I think, had times when we th- we thought we knew which end was up, and then suddenly everything was turned upside down. And uh, whether it's a, the deterioration of a relationship or the the loss of a family member, um, any of those things that that can send you into this kind of spiral. Um, for me, the the disorientation that I, that I experienced was not from a personal tragedy so much as a um, waves of of spiritual doubt that and i 've shared this story with with most of you before, um, but having grown up in the church, you know gone to church every Sunday for my whole life, there, there came a point several years ago when um, some of the stuff just didn 't make sense anymore for me, and I, I had this sort of crisis of faith which I had to experience while I was in pastoral ministry. <laughs> um, and that was disorienting for me. And regardless of whether you've had that particular type of crisis or you've had other, the other types that, that I haven't necessarily had, I think that we probably would agree that one thing is true is that when you make it through something like that, you come out on the other side and you're not the same anymore. Some of what you thought was true, you've had to, it's just been burned out of you. And some of the things that you didn't think were true have, have now been burned into you. And on the other side of this kind of crisis, there is a, a, a deeper, more honest faith. Um, and if you can get through it to that point, it's actually a good place to be. Um, but it's very difficult to walk through. Um, there's a, a story in the, in the Gospel of Luke where John the Baptist, I think, is going through one of these crises um, John the Baptist was a, a, a prophet who had foretold the coming of Jesus right at that time that Jesus was, was alive and uh, had, had actually baptized Jesus in the river and seen this incredible spiritual experience where the, the Spirit of the Lord descended on Jesus like a dove and the voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, talk about a huge spiritual experience. But then John the Baptist was imprisoned and Jesus' ministry got underway in earnest, and John had to hear about it through the the grapevine, <laughs> maybe literally through the holes in the wall of his prison. And so, in in Luke chapter seven, the story is uh, tells us that the disciples of John reported all these miracles to him, and and John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask. This is verse. Uh, 19 of chapter 7. Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? See, John thought that he was the one to come. You saw this whole thing in the river, but then he was in prison, and suddenly his world was upside down. And Jesus had had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. In other words, tell John of the evidence of what you've seen, that I am the one who is to come. Now, Jesus' answer would have sounded very familiar to John, I believe, because what he was basically doing in in that answer that he gave the disciples of John to send back to him was he was almost quoting one of his own sermons. And it's that sermon that he was quoting, I think, that, that I want to talk about a little bit more this morning. But see, Jesus gave an answer to John's question. But he didn't give him an immediate solution to his problem. <laughs> he didn't say all these things, and, oh, by the way, I've spoken with the jailer, and we'll have you out by Tuesday." He just said, "Tell them of what you've seen, and that's it. So we have to actually leave John in prison right now. I want to go uh, back to John chapter four, or excuse me, Luke chapter four in a minute. So today we're talking about justice in the Gospels and the eschaton, these, these nerdy church words which simply mean um, Gospels like the message, good news, the story, you've heard it a lot of different ways. And the eschaton literally means the end, theologically speaking. It's, it's, it's how God will wrap everything up. And so justice is right at the heart of, of, of these things. Um. And we could really talk about what Jesus says about justice and what he does to work for justice. We could literally talk about that for weeks. I could give you a half an hour sermon on it every week until the end of summer, probably. you get bored, but I could probably do that. But Jesus makes it clear that, for example, there's no love of God without love of neighbor. Puts those things together. He affirms the the, the prophetic call that we heard last week that... that um, Doing the normal acts of spiritual worship without caring for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized is nonsensical. Um, One of the awesomest things Jesus ever said, he was talking to the religious leaders and he said, woe to you hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin, all these little tiny things, you're careful to divide them one-tenth to give to the Lord, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith, it is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. I love that, what Jesus says. So when Jesus says to the disciples that he's calling, follow me, this is the place he's going to. So we could spend weeks on that. But what I want to do is, is look at um, a very early event in uh, Jesus' ministry. It's going to come from Luke chapter 4. Um, we'll start with verse 14. And if you'd like to read along in your red Bibles that are under your chairs or uh, in the seat pockets, you can do that. So page 835. So what is happening here is that Jesus has, has just done the very first few things in his ministry, and he's returned to his hometown, Nazareth, in Galilee. And he's gone to the synagogue, where the Jewish worshipers were, to give a teaching. And the teaching that he gives, in my opinion is the foundation for all that he's going to say and do in the years that will follow in his earthly ministry. And the reaction of the people to this teaching, I think, is really fascinating and telling, important for us to to see and hear. So, remembering that this is essentially Jesus' announcement about what his ministry is going to be, let's look at Luke 14 through 22. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. It's an important thing to remember. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, And this is a quote from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, this sitting down is not like a dropping the mic kind of thing. A Jewish teacher would sit down to teach. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount. He sits down and the people come around him and he teaches them from a seated position. That's how Jesus does it. That's why I sit down sometimes. No, it's because I'm lazy. Um, (laughs) The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them this amazing thing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Remember, he's in his, own, his hometown. And so they're saying, Jesus is a little... I remember him when he was... Jesus. Hometown boy. Aren't we all proud? He's talking about... And, boy, they loved this. They loved this quotation from Isaiah. all this stuff about release to the captives. What does he go on to say? Good news to the poor. Recovery of sight to the blind. Let the oppressed go free. The people of Galilee were some of the poorest of the poor in, in this entire nation. And so for their own little Joseph, their own little Jesus to come and and to come back to the synagogue and say, essentially, appropriate for himself this beautiful prophecy that they had probably clung to their whole lives, religiously. To say, this is now coming true. I am the one. They loved it. Now, this part of his message, in some ways, is, is kind of challenging to us. Because we've had a couple thousand years to, to process and adapt our understanding of what salvation is and i think that uh, a lot of us in the church have have kind of adopted this strange dualism where we think that the spiritual realm is one thing and the material th- realm is another thing and yeah i mean it's sure health and 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 all that kind of stuff is important you know our well-being our bodies matter i guess they sort of contain our souls but that's really what matters that's that's, a, that's not the Hebrew way of thinking about the world and about human beings. So f- for his hearers, um, the Messiah coming to offer salvation and then talking about good news to the poor, that's, that, yes, absolutely, that's what they were expecting. If you look at the, the literature of, of uh, Jewish culture at this time, their anticipation of what the Messiah was going to be, that was it. Very easy for them, especially since they are so poor, to say, yes! You go, Jesus. It's a little bit weird for us because we think of salvation as this spiritual thing. You know, I'll fly away, oh Jesus, I'll fly away. (laughs) When I die, hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away. By the way, that kind of dualism is not consistent with Orthodox Christian faith either, in my opinion. After all, the Apostles' Creed says, you may have remembered these words from when we said them, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, the body and the soul uh, eternally united in this new reality that Jesus ushers in at the end of all things, the eschaton. We, We may actually get to that today, I don't know. Not to mention the fact that that kind of separation Uh, absolutely smacks in the face the whole idea of the incarnation, the whole idea that God would literally become enfleshed, embodied, and live among us. I mean, talk about sleeping with homeless people. The creator of the universe became a human being and and dwelled dwelled among us. So to separate body from soul, it just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the point is his audience loved this. They, they didn't have any trouble uh, ascertaining where he was going with this. But Jesus never seems content to stand at the door of the church after a sermon and shake everybody's hand. Good sermon, pastor. <laughs> Having told the people just what they wanted to hear, Jesus tends to antagonize people who become too fond of his words. <laughs> if you start liking what Jesus says a whole lot, he is about to piss you off. It's almost guaranteed. <laughs> Look at the story of uh, John six, the feeding of the five thousand. Right, this great miracle. Right, two fishes and bread. There's like a billion little kid songs about that. I sang them all growing up. Yay, Jesus! Woo hoo! Five thousand people are about to like. They're all texting their friends saying, "You have got to see this guy." And then he starts talking about how you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to see the kingdom of God. And the text very wryly says, "And they went away disappointed." <laughs> That's what Jesus does. <laughs> And he's about to do it to these people too. So he goes on and he pokes and prods at them, ultimately makes them incredibly angry to the point that they want to kill him literally. And, and here's what happens um, starting in verse 23. After they're all happy, he says, um, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proper doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. I'll tell you why in a minute. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. It's like a Jedi. <laughs> <coughs> what he's done here is flipped the script on, on these folks, these poor, poor People. And he's told them two stories from their own religious heritage, from the Hebrew Bible, that they would have known. The first story about uh, the widow is from 1 Kings 17. The second story about the, the man who's healed of leprosy is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Well known to the people. I'm not going to read them to you now. You can read them on your own time if you wish. But the point here is that everybody would have known these stories And everybody would have known what probably most of you in this room didn't pick up on is that those two people were Gentiles. They were the unclean. They were the religious outsiders. They had dirty socks and bedbugs, spiritually speaking. And it's not enough for Jesus to say, guess what? Elijah didn't just... Take care of the Israelites. He also took care of that. Remember that one Gentile woman? Isn't it nice of Jesus to be so, or uh, wasn't it nice of Elijah to be so inclusive? And then Elisha, Elijah's uh, follower, the next generation of the great prophets. How he healed that military leader's leprosy. That guy was a Gentile. Isn't it nice of him? No, what Jesus says is there were all kinds of widows in Israel. That Elijah could have gone to, and he went to the, the Gentile. And there were plenty of people with leprosy in Israel, and Elijah didn't heal a single one of them. He went to the Gentile. <laughs> That's why they got mad. Because Jesus had just sort of set them up by saying, I am here to proclaim, release to the captives, good news for the poor et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, gets them all up in a happy little lather and then says, but you cannot keep it for yourselves. It is not just for you. And you don't get to decide who else gets this blessing. That's why we talk about so often here, and I hope that, I hope that we can make this more than just talk, why we talk about how it's important not to think that we are the insiders, That we are somehow specially blessed and have a monopoly on God's love and care. All the evidence points to that not being how God operates. And what's more disconcerting is that the evidence also often points to the fact that God's about to flip you upside down if that's what you think is real. So, I need to fly through this. But But, I want you to think to, to know that I think we need to hear both parts of this message. first of all, we do need to correct that that odd dualism between mind and sp- spirit and body. Um, we need to recognize that God wants to save everything about us and everything about his world, not just individual souls you know if we are if we're trying to make churches into little conversion factories, that is the wrong way to to live out the the full salvation that God wants for us um, and What's more, we are in no less than his original hearers and no less than people outside the walls of the church desperately in need of that full, holistic healing that Jesus wants to bring. I mean, listen to the prayer requests that we give every couple of weeks. The good news of the kingdom is nothing less than the healing of the whole world. But we also need to recognize that God wants to save everyone. Now, Whether or not everyone wants what God is offering is another question altogether, which I'm not going to go into at the moment. But God wants to save everyone the people way up here, the people way down here, the people inside the circle, the people outside the circle, the people who've never even seen the circle, the people who think there is no circle, (laughs) the people with bad theology. It is impossible, it is impossible for us to genuinely embrace the good news of the kingdom unless we are open to the salvation of people who are different from ourselves, including people who we don't think deserve it. Our restoration depends on theirs. Our wholeness depends on theirs. You remember Artisan, one of Artisan's life verses from one of the other prophets, Jeremiah twenty-nine four through seven, it's about like in, in the exile, saying garden, like build gardens and, and build houses and plant gardens and marry people and have families, and then he says, seek the welfare of the city in which I've sent you in to exile, because in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's what. That's the way that salvation works. So it's, you you can't sit alone in this room and and experience God's salvation. Because you're not offering it to anybody else. And God's salvation doesn't pick and choose that way. And if you want it to pick and choose, you are not doing his work. I didn't get to the eschaton. (laughs) But let me just say this very quickly. Let's return to John in prison for a minute. Because John, uh, as I said, got an answer to his question but not a solution to his problem. Right? Right? John maybe was hoping for everything to come together for him right before his eyes, right in that moment. By the way, did you notice, this is a very fine point on this, but when Jesus quoted his sermon from Luke 4 in answer to John in Luke 7, he left out one of the phrases. He left out the phrase about release of the captives. So There's John rotting in prison. He has an answer, but not a solution. John lives in that famous theological reality that I love to talk about so much, the already, not yet. Jesus came to proclaim release to the captives, but they are not all going to be released right away. He proclaimed, came to proclaim and bring about good news to the poor, but they are all not going to, to receive that right away. A lot of it, by the way, depends on you and me and our willingness to work as agents of that salvation. But despite the fact that we suck at that and are not going to live it out enough, the end of things, and this is the eschaton side of this equation, is when all of that will be brought to its fruition. It's not enough to say pie in the sky by and by, let's just sit here and wait. We have to Pull that future into the present. Have we talked about that enough lately? We have to be agents of that salvation, but we're not going to be able to do it, and we're not going to be willing to do it all the time. The hope in eternity is that God will do it. Jesus will bring it about. Revelation 5, Every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, singing praises to the Lord, from every nation, Jews, Gentiles, insiders, outsiders, all of us together, And then my favorite thing in Revelation is from chapter 7. You know, all that stuff about the beast and the numbers and the flames and the swords and the horses. I don't think we know what that means half the time when we talk about it. Horses are awesome, aren't they, Noella? Um, Not this horse. (laughs) It's so confusing and we spend so much energy trying to figure it out. Read Revelation 7. This is not confusing. You don't have to spend any time figuring it out. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Whew! (laughs) So you are living in this already not yet tension, just as John was sitting there rotting in prison. You have an answer, but you don't have a solution. Your hope depends ultimately on, on the work that Jesus wants to do on the, throughout all time and eternity level. But your hope also depends on your brother's and sister's willingness to do that work in the here and now to bring about that holistic salvation for you right now. And and once you realize that that is true, you can't help but realize that there's another person out there whose hope depends on it as well. And it doesn't depend on your friend's willingness in that time. It depends on yours. Um. I got off the track. <laughs> I don't know how to get back, so I'm just going to stop. Um, let's take communion together, and I apologize that we're late. Um, we'll probably still sing two more songs together if that's okay. It's a beautiful day; you'll have plenty of time to frolic in the sun. <laughs> um. Jesus opens his table to all of us to receive the body and blood of Christ. Uh, If you're in a place where you're seeking to follow after him, this table is open for you. There are no restrictions based on church membership or affiliation. This is the table of the Lord, and he calls to you. He calls to you. Let's continue to worship him together.